Take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11 in the Old Testament. We're going to consider parts of 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. And the message today is entitled, The Destructiveness of Sin and the Deliverance of Forgiveness. King David was first introduced to us in the Bible when Samuel, who was God's servant, was sent to find him in the household of Jesse. Saul, who was the first king over the United Kingdom of God's people, had been disobedient. He had not done things God's way, and as a result, God had determined that he was going to replace him with David. David, being the youngest of Jesse's sons, was a most unlikely choice to rise to the position of king and to be anointed over God's people. But when he came to power, he rose quickly in strength and also in renown. He's described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. David, as the king of Israel, was a man of courage, and he was a man who wrote the majority of the Psalms as we know them, the psalmist or the songwriter of Israel, giving us insight into the human experience and the range of emotions and life experiences that we have in our walk with God. He's the one who slew the giant Goliath, and he led a valiant army continuously and never lost a battle in that regard. He was the most powerful man in all the known world in his position as the king over Israel. But the passage before us today describes what was the darkest time in the life of David. He had walked with God for many years at this point. We're not sure exactly how old he was, but what we'll find today is not a youthful indiscretion. This is a man who should have known better and who in fact did know better, but he did what he wanted to do rather than obeying God and keeping himself from sin. There were cracks in the fault lines of his life that led him to a place of vulnerability and then ultimately rebellion against God. You might have read back in the latter part of January, there was a water dam that burst down in Brazil. It was from an iron mine and the water itself was basically the byproduct of all of the mining process. And it had built up to great volume and ultimately collapsed. When it collapsed, many people lost their lives. It was destructive to the area where the mine collapsed. But it was not something that happened all of a sudden. In fact, several months preceding when the dam burst, they had actually issued a report that there were weaknesses, that there were problems with the dam. And ultimately, those problems revealed themselves with its breaking down and ultimately collapsing and all the people that perished because of it. This is similar to how sin works in our lives. Very rarely is it one sin that all of a sudden collapses us or one sin that all of a sudden just comes to the forefront. It's generally a progression in our lives where we are vulnerable and we are not aware of the way that we're headed And we put ourselves in a dangerous position to the point that we can do something that dishonors God, 
that reveals the weaknesses of our lives and causes destruction to follow. The most dangerous place that any of us could ever be in spiritually is to think that whatever that is could never happen to me. I am not capable of doing such a thing. You need to understand well that there is not one thing that we are incapable of doing should we decide to dishonor God and disobey him and do what we want to do. Should we put ourselves in a position of weakness to where we could fail our Lord. We are all capable of doing things that we would never think that we would do. And that's why the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We're told in Romans chapter 7 that sin deceives and as a result of that, the end of it is death and sin causes the sinner to lose their way and sin gives us the false impression that everything is okay. You see, one of the weaknesses in King David's life to begin with was that he had already previously departed what God said to do and how God said to do it. He had taken on multiple wives for himself in contradiction to the direct command of God. In fact, in Deuteronomy 17, it said he must not acquire many wives for himself, speaking of the king, so that his heart won't go astray so that he may fear the Lord his God to observe all the words of his instruction. But according to what we find in 1 Samuel uh, 25 and then 2 Samuel chapter 3, David went against God's design. So when we start down that road, we get to a certain point that anything could potentially go. Anything could potentially happen. And I think David had a sense of entitlement. After all, he had had all of this personal success. He had had all of these victories. He's the most powerful monarch of all. He could do what he wanted to do. Sometimes we can be in a situation where we have a sense of entitlement. We think, well, we've served God for all of this time and we've done right. And certainly it'll be okay if we indulge in just this one thing. David lacked accountability. Who would question him? Who was going to come into the king's presence and question the direction that he was going in? And I want us to consider this account today in light of certainly the sexual sin that took place because sexual sin is very serious, uh, particularly in the regard that it's a sin against one's own body. But I think it's really a narrative for us about all of sin not just isolated to this one sin, we can't as Christians come to this account and think, well, we're not guilty overtly of adultery, therefore this passage must not apply to me. Instead, we would look at the scripture and say, okay, this is a narrative about what happens when we give in to temptation. We succumb to sin and we disobey God. So I hope that we'll look at this with humble hearts and watchful eyes as a reminder of the destructiveness of sin and the deliverance of forgiveness. And I want us to work our way through this in a sense in in movements or aspects of what's taking place in the story. And the first is this, that is sin committed. And we begin reading in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we'll read the first five verses here. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. 
They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, and wife of Uriah the Hethite or the Hittite? David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterwards, she returned home. Verse 5, the woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. The winter months in that region of the world, much like our own winter months, made things somewhat difficult. They would have difficulty in going out to battle because of the mud and all the impediments that they might encounter. So they would essentially at times take breaks and when the weather improved, the fighting would ensue. So the springtime was peak time for these battles to take place. David should have been out with his troops for battle, but instead he stayed behind. Second Samuel chapter 10 tells us that they had just won a significant and decisive victory at the end of that chapter, and David was not where he was supposed to be. Sin often begins when we are not where we are supposed to be. When we put ourselves in a place where we are more likely to do something we would not otherwise have done, then we put ourselves in a place where we are more prone to sin. And so it was with David. He's there when all of his troops are out doing what he should have been doing. And the biblical commentator Trapp said, while Joab is busy in laying siege to Rabbah, Satan is laying siege to David. And he far sooner prevailed. Staying home from battle provided the opportunity for temptation and for personal indulgence. So David gets up out of his bed and he walks out onto the roof of the palace. I think that tells us something that here he is in the time when his troops are out. He's wandering around a little bit. He, he's sort of nervous about the whole situation and he's unfocused on what he's supposed to be focused on. And he walks out onto the roof of the palace. Houses were constructed where they would have these upper patio areas and they could go out and catch some breeze or just go out and get out of the house. And that's what David did. And when he gets out on the roof, he's tempted because he sees this woman bathing. She was very beautiful. Please note here, the temptation in and of itself is not a sin. Had he just seen what he saw and moved on, minded his own business, kept himself in a position where he could stay away from the sinful temptation, he would have been okay. We all know too well that on a daily basis we are exposed to temptations. We are in situations and things come into our minds and into our hearts and we see with our eyes and we hear with our ears and these things are temptations to us. But the temptation alone is not a sin. It's when we linger over that temptation and we decide that we're going to go beyond it. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, no temptation has come upon you except such as common to man. 
But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to bear it. No person, when they give in to sinful temptation and go the next step and actually act on the temptation, no person can point the finger at God and say, God, you're responsible for that. I could not help myself. There was no way that I could keep from doing what I've done when in fact the Bible says no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful and he will provide the way of escape. So David lingers over this temptation. He pursues it. He sins and makes an inquiry about her. The question arises about who she is. And David has already committed adultery in his mind, in his heart, before he's committed adultery in his action. So he sends the messengers to get her and they brought her back. He lay with her. He committed adultery with her, knowing that what he was doing was wrong. He did it anyway. Now, if he had thought through this, he would have known that the cost of his sin was greater than the payoff. Is this not the anatomy of idolatry in a sense that the enemy places before us the forbidden fruit he places before us something that is attractive that seems pleasurable and if we're honest sin is pleasurable for a time it can be pleasurable for a season before the consequences come and had david thought about the fact that he was being lured in and that there were going to be significant problems with what he was doing perhaps he would not have done it So don't be blinded by the enemy to think that what you're going to get out of the situation is going to be greater than what the cost of it is going to be. And as I've heard all my life, sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. And sin will cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. We commit sin when we embrace temptation and we follow our own desires rather than obeying God. James chapter 1 says, No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil. And he himself doesn't tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed, watch this, by his own evil desire. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. David lay with the woman and she conceived and the plot thickened. We now come to the second aspect of this story and that is sin covered up. It says here in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 6 that David sent orders to Joab. Let's read the account of what takes place. Send me Uriah the Hethite. So Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. Then he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king followed him, but Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants. He did not go down to his house. When it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home. David questioned Uriah, haven't you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah answered David, The ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents 
and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next, and then David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk. He went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servants, but he did not go home. Now verse 14. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter he wrote, put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. Then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab, and some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle. Uriah the Hittite also died. Joab sent someone to report to David all the details of the battle. He commanded the messenger, when you finish telling the king all the details of the battle, if the king's anger gets stirred up and he asks you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you realize they would shoot from the top of the wall? At Thebes, they, who struck Abimelech, son of Jerubasheth, didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the top of the wall so that he died? Why did you get so close to the wall? Then say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then the messenger left. When he arrived, he reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger reported to David, the men gained the advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we counterattacked right up to the entrance of the city gate. However, the archers shot down on your servants from the top of the wall and some of the king's servants died. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this matter upset you because the sword devours all alike. Intensify your fight against the city and demolish it encourage him. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. When the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. Now watch this. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. David found out that Bathsheba had conceived in their encounter and that she was pregnant with a child. At this point, he should have repented and cut his losses, taken responsibility for what had happened, but he did what unrepentant sinners often do, and that is he tried to hide his sin. Sin begets more sin. Sin can turn into a spiral to where something that we've done becomes a combination of things that we have done and all of a sudden the trouble has increased. Now we all know that the attempt to hide sin is foolish. Sin is never hidden from God. Sin can only be attempted to be hidden from God. Oh, we can deceive ourselves. We can deceive other people at least for a time, but you can never deceive God because God sees all things. And it is the utmost foolishness to think that somehow we can hide something from God. And as soon as we are conscious of the sin that we have done, the right thing to do is not to hide it, 
It is to take it to the Lord in confession and repentance. But David decided he was going to conceal it and cover it up rather than deal with it. So he sends word for Uriah to be brought back to the city of David. His plan was that Uriah would go home and enjoy the comforts of home and have a sexual encounter with his wife and the problem would be covered. But Uriah was a man of honor and integrity. He said, the ark, the people, the tents, they're all out there. My commander is out there. I will not do this. So David tries again and he actually gets him drunk. And even though he got him drunk, he still wouldn't go and be with his wife. So David writes the death sentence for Uriah, places it in Uriah's hand, sends him back to the commander. And the message there was that he was to be put into the fiercest part of the fighting. And David knew there was a good possibility, if not a high probability, that he would be killed in the middle of that fighting. And that's exactly what happened to Uriah. And isn't it not interesting that when the word came back to David about what happened, isn't it not interesting how flippantly David responds to it? He says, oh, well, the sword devours one as well as the other. See, what he's trying to do is he's trying to ease his conscience. He's trying to say, oh, well, these things happen. This is just par for the course. This is nothing to be discouraged about. You continue on and you do your thing. And you finish this battle that you've engaged in. And yet all the while, he's hiding sin, thinking that it's not going to be dealt with. I'm reminded of another Old Testament example in the life of Achan. Joshua chapter 7 records the event. You remember anything about it, you know that they were victorious over Jericho in Joshua chapter 6. And there were specific instructions that were given to the people that they were to utterly destroy everything that was there in the city. They were to take nothing for themselves. The only thing they were to do was to spare Rahab and her family, not only spare Rahab and her family, but also take the silver and the gold and the precious metals and bring them back and have them put into the treasury of God. So they were not to be for personal gain. And they went on from there to a place called Ai, and they thought that certainly under Joshua's leadership, they were also going to have a swift victory there, and they were overwhelmed. And Joshua's wondering, what happened? We should have won this victory just like we overcame Jericho. We should have dominated these people. And God told Joshua that something had happened, that within the camp, there was someone who had not obeyed him, who had taken what was not theirs, and they were to consecrate themselves, and the next morning, the one who was guilty would be identified. Achan, when confronted, confessed what he had done, and as judgment for his sin, he and his family were stoned to death, and everything they had was burned. He said, wait a minute. Is the God of the Old Testament different than the God of the New Testament? I thought we were under grace and under forgiveness. God has not changed. He remains the same. 
from eternity past to eternity future. And what this shows to us is that the holiness of God is the character trait that he embodies out of which everything else flows. That our God is a holy God and he is a consuming fire. That he will not ignore sin. That there will be consequences for sin. And as we'll see as we move forward in this, were it not for the fact that the consequences of our sins were laid upon Jesus Christ. If it were not for the fact that there was a propitiation that was made for our sins when the ultimate mercy seat, the Lamb of God, gave himself so that our sins could be forgiven. God was not ignoring sin. God was dealing with sin. And in it, he was showing us the way of deliverance. So this story is a reminder to us of the high price of sin and the cost of not obeying the Lord. Uriah is killed, word comes back, and then David subsequently takes Bathsheba as his wife. But if you want to see commentary on what God thinks about the whole situation, look again at chapter 11 and verse 27. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. You understand that sin is evil. Sin is evil. We call it for what it is. When God saw this, he said that this sin was evil. We have light and we have darkness. We have righteousness and we have unrighteousness. We ultimately have heaven and we have hell. And there is a significant contrast in the word of God between the two. And if we are not in right standing with God, we have no hope. And now we move from sin covered up to the third aspect, and that is sin confronted. Now, it's interesting that David's state of heart and mind in the days that followed are reflected in part in Psalm 32. He wrote two psalms as a result of this experience in his life. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Psalm 51 being the full-on expression of repentance before a holy God. Psalm 32 talking about the experience that he had. And David wrote in Psalm 32, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Speaking of being covered by God. He said, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. But here's what David said about his sin. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my vitality was turned into the drought of of summer. And he said, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. So what he's describing is the full-on weight of sin and the reality of conviction when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of our lives, when we have disobeyed God and we have dishonored God, we feel it down to the depths of our bones. There's a sickness within us. There's a weight that is within us because of the heavy hand of God that is upon us. Because of what we've done. An intense conviction and continual misery followed David's sin, but he still did not confess it on his own. Oh, he knew the struggle of living a a double life. Yet he did not listen to his own conscience or to the Holy Spirit. And God had to send somebody to confront him. 
The Bible says in Numbers 32 and verse 23, take note, you who have sinned against the Lord. Be sure your sins will find you out. I know this in a congregation this size. There are people here this morning who say they know the Lord who are attempting to cover up and conceal their sin thinking, oh, this won't hurt anybody. Oh, nobody will know. Oh, I've gotten by with this for a long time. It'll be okay. And the enemy is telling you to keep going down that path. Keep trying to cover it up. Dig the hole deeper. Make the consequences even greater. And he has convinced you in the hardness of your heart, in the blindness of your eyes, in the deafness of your ears, that God is ignoring what is taking place in your life. And perhaps you are on the cusp of God sending someone to you to confront you with your situation. Understand well that what we cover in the sight of the Lord, the Lord will uncover for all to see. But what God covers when we uncover it to him is where we find forgiveness and freedom. Do not listen to the enemy who is telling you that it's okay to keep going down that road that you're going down. That there will not be a price to pay for whatever it is that you're involved with. That there will be no consequences to bear for the actions of your life. Because there will be. And you can either deal with it now, come before the Lord, or you can deal with it later when the Lord brings it out in the open for all to see. I can't tell you how many times I've been lied to through the years as a pastor in difficult situations dealing with people who had gotten off on the wrong track. I've been looked straight in the eyes countless times and seeing the denial of sin and the destruction that followed. And I'm telling you, you don't want to come to the place that David came to. Because what God did was he sent the prophet Nathan to David. We pick up reading again in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 1. So the Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he arrived, he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. So Nathan begins to tell him a parable. He begins to tell him another story. And in this story, he is going to unveil the situation at hand. And he says the rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised her, and she grew up with him and with his children. And from his meager food, she would eat. From his cup, she would drink. And in his arms, she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, 
He took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. Nathan presents a parable and he draws it to a conclusion. There's a rich man. He had ample flocks and ample livestock. There's a poor man. He had one ewe lamb. That one ewe lamb meant everything in the world to him. David's represented by the rich man. The poor man's represented as Uriah. And the sin that Nathan described, in a sense, is theft. Now, you thought it was adultery, and it is adultery, but it was theft. And the reason that it was theft is because David took something that did not rightly belong to him. He took another man's wife. And when he hears this situation, he's furious. It says, verse 5, David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he had done this thing, he had shown no pity. He must pay four lambs for that lamb. He passed judgment on the man that the man should die, even though it wasn't a capital crime. And isn't this the height of irony? That we can be caught up in our own sin and yet look at someone else who has committed a sin and absolutely drop the hammer of judgment because we are so blinded to our own sin that we cannot recognize what's truly taking place? David wants the man's life, and not only does he want the man's life, he wants him to make restitution for what he's done. And that's what happens sometimes when people are confronted with their sin. They will deny it. They will show anger. They will rationalize for what they've done. They will blame others and seek a way of escape. And yet here David is in the moment at the crescendo of this account. Verse 7. Nathan replied to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I rescued you from Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that was not enough, I would have even given you more. Why then have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil. You struck down Uriah with the sword and took his wife as your own. You murdered him with the Ammonite's sword. Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. And I'll take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes. And he will sleep with them in broad daylight. Hmm. I always thought growing up, I heard this story. I've heard this story preached I don't know how many times. I became a Christian in February of 1979, 40 years ago. I always envisioned in my mind's eye Nathan coming into the presence of a king with boldness, pointing a bony finger in his face at the culmination of this story and saying, you are 
the man. And maybe he did it that way. Certainly what he said. Maybe it was with that type of bold forcefulness of a prophet. But I've also wondered, further I've gone along in a Christian life and seen the pain of people falling by the wayside and sinning egregiously and breaking families up and giving a poor testimony for Christ. I wonder if old Nathan didn't say those words with the weight of sorrow. Reckon he looked at the king with tears in his eyes. Said, you're the man, David. Brokenness in his spirit for what had taken place. David's sin at its foundation was ingratitude to God. Remember, I told you it was adultery. I told you it was theft. But we get insight here from what Nathan says that it was at its foundation in gratitude to God. Nathan says, from the word of the Lord, God says, I gave you so much. And yet you've done this. Is that not the nature of how sin entered into the world to begin with? That God placed Adam and Eve there in the garden and he walked with them in the coolness of the day and he provided for them everything they could possibly need. And he said, there's just this one thing that you shall not do. And that is that you are not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because there's going to be consequences to follow. And all they could see was the one tree, the forbidden fruit. How often does Satan get a hold of us and we've got so much. We've got a blessed family. We have so many friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have so many blessings and provisions from a holy God. And sin blinds us and gives us this tunnel vision to where all we can see is the thing that we shouldn't be seeing. God says that is the way of destruction. And he says, why have you despised the Lord's command in doing what I consider to be evil? And you understand that David was despising God himself. First John chapter 1 and verse 6 says, if we say that we have fellowship with God and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. And then we move to this final aspect of the story. And that is sin confessed. Very short sentence in verse 13 in David's response. Here it is. I have sinned against the Lord. Do you know in the original Hebrew, that's only two words. Fewer words are more when it's spoken in truth. Just two words. I have sinned against the Lord. He recognized what he had done in that moment and he confessed. This is an example for us of how we should confess when we've done wrong. Not, I made a mistake. I made an error in judgment. I made an indiscretion. All that's just excuses. We want ourselves to feel better and we want the other people around us to feel better about what we've done and about the consequences that we've brought. And what we need to do is we need to be willing to come before a holy God, ideally before our sin has been uncovered, before all to see and to go and to confess to God and to deal with the situation that we have created and just simply say, I have sinned. 
But you understand, we've gotten to the place in the church where we're much more concerned about what other people think about us than what we think God thinks of us. That's what we're concerned about. Why do you think that we have empty altars and dry eyes and hard hearts? Because we're in the midst of the religious activity, but not walking in brokenness before a holy God. We're not recognizing what it means to have a right relationship with him. David said, I have sinned. That psalm that I referred to earlier in Psalm 51, he cries out to God and he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Most people are but a prayer of repentance away from true life change. But yet they're cornered by the devil, weighed down by their own denial, wallowing in the situation they've created. And God is saying, that's not how I created you to live. And here was the response back to David. The Lord has taken away your sin and you will not die. Now, immediately speaking here in terms of the penalty for adultery under the Mosaic law, which was death. But he's talking ultimately about the restoration of his relationship with God as well. First John chapter 1 and verse 9 is written to believers. That if you will confess your sin, that God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And you understand what sin does. Sin has the effect of of grieving the Spirit of God. Just like I think Nathan was grieved when he had to point his finger into the face of the king and say, you are the man. I think when the Holy Spirit of God sees down deep within us and he sees not only the actions that we have undertaken, but he sees the motivations of our hearts and he sees the thoughts that have brought us to the place where we sin egregiously against God, he is grieved for what happens. And the Bible says that he is quenched, that it's like taking a wet blanket and throwing it over a candle when we sin. And while we are not severed from our relationship with God as David was not, our relationship with God is greatly hindered when we're caught up in sin. Galatians 6 and verse 7 and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a person sows, he will also reap, because the one who sows to the flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, and the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit of God. Nobody sins in isolation. Forgiveness is full and free at the point of repentance, but consequences from our behavior often remain, and that certainly was the case in David's life. The baby who was conceived would not live. That's hard for us to understand and even harder to accept. But when sin takes root, even the innocent suffer. 
We're not isolated in what we have done. David's family would suffer treachery and violent deaths among his sons and more. And it was related, it was rooted in David's disobedience to God. Now we've got to be careful at this point. I understand that there are many things that happen because we're living in a sin-fallen world. And we cannot identify everything that happens in our lives or in the lives of someone else as a direct consequence of something that we've done. That's not the point that I'm making, but that is the point that I'm making in David's life because that's what the Bible says. That's the reality of the pain of what took place. And God is the God of mercy and grace, but let us never forget that God is also the God of justice. And let me close with what our hope is. Our hope is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our hope is the truth of Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. And the reality of Romans chapter 10, that if we will confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God is raised from the dead, we will be saved. So you understand what's happening here. It's not as though we can hide our sin and somehow God just ignores it and it's okay and we just keep rolling on because he's the big guy in the sky and we can get by with it. Not at all. If we die in our own trespasses and sins, already being spiritually dead, but then being physically dead, entering into eternity apart from having the forgiveness of God in Christ, we will spend eternity in a place that the Bible calls hell. And it will be in hell that we will pay the wages for our own sin. There will not be one sin that is not paid for, that the wages will not be exacted upon. But the blessing of grace and mercy and forgiveness is that Jesus, the Son of God, was willing to leave the glory of heaven and enter into the mess of this earth to take on flesh as 100% God and 100% man, to subject himself to being tempted at every point as we are, yet he was without sin, to be willing to be nailed to a cross so that the penalty for our sin would be laid upon him. And you cannot understand the beauty of the gospel. You cannot understand the magnitude of forgiveness unless you understand what happened on that cross. Because it was on that cross that every unacceptable thing that we have ever done or will do, every egregious sin that we have ever committed, every dark act or thought that we have ever undertaken was laid on the one who was not deserving the very penalty for our sin was laid upon our Savior. The wrath of God rested upon the Son of God for my sins. And there was a blood atonement that was made, a propitiation that was made to satisfy fully the wrath of God. And when I come in repentance and faith, I'm covered by the blood of Jesus forever. And let me just ask you this question in closing. If we've been covered by the blood of Jesus and the cost of our salvation was so great that it cost God his only son, then would it not follow that we would live our lives consistently with who we proclaim to be and what we believe that God has done on our behalf? 
Why would we dishonor God? Why would we live in pride? Why would we rebel against the very word that God has instructed us in, driven by his grace? And I want you to know today, there's forgiveness available. Followers of Jesus are capable of doing some very serious things. And maybe you're in a bind right now in your life by something that's going on. There's forgiveness to be found if you'll humble yourself at the throne of God. And if you've never taken that first step of believing in Jesus and his death and his resurrection for your eternal life, today's the day. Today's the day to come and follow Jesus. Spire our heads together just for a moment as we come toward a close. As our heads are bowed and we're preparing for a closing song and a time of response and invitation, listen, I know this is a hard message. Hard message. But it's one we desperately need. It's one the church needs for the glory of God. And in just a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. And God's stirring some of you. I know he is. He's stirring some of you to salvation and he's stirring some of you to a place of repentance about something that's going on in your life. The enemy's going to tell you to wait. He's going to tell you you got plenty of time. He's going to tell you, don't go embarrass yourself in front of those people. Friend, I'd rather embarrass myself in front of people than I had ignore what God was calling me to do. Would you hear the leading of the Holy Spirit through his word and respond? Father, this your word is your word. We're grateful for the account in David's life that tells us not only about the danger and the destructive nature of sexual sin, but really the anatomy of all sin and how we get ourselves in bondage and strongholds and brokenness that we should not be in. Lord, you know every person's thoughts, motivations, heart, and actions. Everything is laid bare before you. There's nothing hidden from your sight. And I pray there not be anybody in this place today that would try to cover what you're ultimately going to uncover in the sight of all. But that they would have their sins covered and forgiven through the blood of Jesus. And through the freedom of repentance and confession. To willingly say, I have sinned against you, God. So you use this time of close, Lord, however you see fit. Help us to listen well and to obey you. Thank you for Jesus and for the cross without which we would have no hope. But in him we have eternal hope through the promise, through the blood, through the power of the resurrection. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.